If you would, please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Today we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. One of my brothers-in-law is an engineer who helps design office buildings. He works hard to create a blueprint of a building, to, to carefully show where the water lines need to go, where to put the electrical wires and heating and cooling vents. His schematics reveal the, the pr precise placement of, of the windows and doors, the height of the ceiling, and the width of each room. Not only that, but he designs things so that the buildings are safe with a good foundation and enough structural support. His blueprint of the building gives exact guidelines on what to do during the construction process and where to put everything. But imagine if the construction workers who, who built that office building decided to completely ignore the blueprint. They put exposed wires on the outside of the walls. They make the ceiling only four feet tall. They put the windows on the floors. They don't hook the water or sewage lines up to the toilets. No foundation is laid. And instead of using wooden support beams, they use paper mache. Now, how well do you think that office building would run? Probably not so good. In fact, it would be a complete disaster. Not only are there going to be problems galore, but things like exposed wires, no foundation, and paper mache structural support beams could end up destroying the entire building. If the blueprints are not followed, then things can be very messy or completely destroyed. Well, today we're going to look at the blueprints for something. Not the blueprints for a building, but the blueprints for marriage. Our creator God, in his kindness, has not left us in the dark about what marriage is and how we are, it is supposed to be designed. And the most basic outline for marriage is given in this very second chapter of the Bible. When the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, was explaining how marriage was a picture of, of Christ's love for the church and the church's submission to Christ. He quoted from this passage in Genesis 2 as the foundation for marriage. And when our Lord Jesus Christ was dealing with the issue of marriage and divorce in Matthew 19, he also quoted from this passage in Genesis 2, looking at it as the blueprint for all marriages. And that blueprint gives us vital and essential guidance. Not only should it make us praise our creator God for what he has done, but it should also bring healing and encouragement and transformation to our marriages and should give us clarity as we live in a world that is incredibly confused about this issue. 
Now, on Sunday evenings, we have been going through the book of Genesis, and then on Sunday mornings, we've been going through the book of Matthew, and we're going to get back to that schedule next week. But because God's divine blueprints for marriage are so important, and because they have become so ignored and attacked in our society, I thought it would be helpful for our entire church to focus on this issue together during our main gathering this morning. If our marriages are constructed according to God's blueprints, our marriages will be filled with joy. But if those blueprints are ignored, marriages will either become incredibly messy or they will end up just as destroyed as that building we talked about earlier. So please look with me at Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25, as we examine God's blueprint for marriage. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Lord God, we thank you for speaking to us again this morning through your word. And I ask that you would help us as we examine this issue of marriage, that you would help us to, to gain clarity, that we would not be confused, so that we would be able to proclaim your clear blueprint to those around us. I also ask God that as we as we look at this passage for those here who, who are married, that you would help us to to follow what it has to say about marriage, and that we would be encouraged by what it has to say. And for those here who have not yet been married, I ask that they would look towards this, look towards this as, as something that they want to develop when they come together. I ask also that all of us would rejoice as we see your perfect design. We thank you so much for your word, and in your son's name we pray. Amen. If you'd like to better follow along today, there's an outline of our sermon on the back of your bulletin. In Genesis 1, God showed his power, his creativity, his sovereignty and goodness as he created the entire universe in just six days. 
And then in Genesis chapter 2, we see a a zoomed-in snapshot of what happened on that sixth day of creation, the day where God created man and woman in his own image. And our passage today begins on that sixth day when God had created the first man but had not yet made the woman. And the lack of a woman was a big problem. Which brings us to our first point, the need, a companion, the need, a companion. Matthew 2, verses 18 through 20 say, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Throughout the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, after God makes something, it says again and again, and God saw that it was good. Meaning God acknowledged that each thing he made was just right. It was complete. It was exactly how it should be. And so after an entire chapter of hearing and God saw that it was good, it should wake us up when we hear then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. There was something missing about mankind. Something was incomplete. Now, this was not an an oversight. It was not a mistake on the part of our all-knowing God, but was meant to emphasize the necessity of both genders. God wanted to make it clear that his creation of mankind was not exactly as it should be until he created both male and female. It was not good that the man should be alone. There was a problem, and the problem was loneliness. From the very beginning, God created mankind to be social creatures. The first man needed a companion, needed a a friend. So God said, I will make him a helper fit for him. God would solve the problem of man's loneliness by making him a helper, someone who could assist, who could aid the man in his responsibilities. And this helper would be fit for him, meaning the helper would be a a superb complement to the man. They would be ideal counterparts. In other words, they would be the perfect match. Earlier in Genesis 2, God had placed the man into the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And in Genesis 1, we saw that mankind was given the task of ruling over the rest of created things. And in order for man to be complete, to have a friend and to be assisted in his responsibility to rule the earth under God, God determined to give him a helper who perfectly complemented him. But where was God to find this ideal companion? 
Well, in Genesis 2, 19 through 20, God has the man look through all the creatures of the earth. It says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. In the Bible, naming something shows your authority over that thing. God had shown this in the first chapter of Genesis as God named various parts of his creation. And now as God gave man authority over the creatures, God showed man's responsibility to lead by having the man name all the animals. This naming events was not just to show man's authority. It was also to show man's need. It was a, a teaching moment. But the man would have noticed that there was Mr. Dog and Mrs. Dog. There was Mr. Elephant and Mrs. Elephant. There was Mr. Human and nobody. Every creature had its match. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Adam's naming of the animals opened his eyes to the truth that he was incomplete, that he was alone, which would make God's solution all the more amazing and Adam's joy all the more full. And that leads us to our next point, the solution, a woman, the solution, a woman. Genesis 2, 21 through 23 says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The first surgery in history was performed by the best surgeon in history. As God gave the man an intense nap, took a part of man and used it to create a woman. The point of God using the man's rib was to show the intimate connection between the man and the woman. That woman was made out of the same DNA, the same body. That woman was made with a sameness, a unity with the man. And yet, at the same time, there would be difference between the genders. And I think we see Adam's joy in both the unity and the difference between himself and the woman when we look at Adam's response to the creation of woman in verse 23. Where Adam, who, who could have wrote great cards for Hallmark, says poetically, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She was similar to the man as her body came from his, but she was not another man. She was woman. And the English language here very accurately 
catches the idea of the Hebrew. In the original Hebrew, man, the word for man is ish, and the word for woman is isha. The very name of woman is connected with the name of man, and yet it is different. The first man broke into poetry, recognizing the goodness of God's creation, that God had not just made an exact duplicate of man, God had not just made two men, but God created someone who was similar to the man and yet utterly unique, the same but different, the perfect match. And the first man and woman were not made as brother and sister, but as husband and wife. The first humans were married. And we see that in our next point, the explanation a marriage. The explanation a marriage. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Up to this point, the focus has been on the first man and the first woman. But verse 24 moves to applying the principles of this passage to every marriage. Man was lonely and incomplete, so God made a companion for man, a woman who was similar and yet different than man, the perfect complement. And so in verse 24, it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Obviously, there, there aren't any fathers or mothers at this point in creation. So this is speaking about all the marriages in the future. This is a universal principle. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Marriage does not destroy your relationship with your parents who raised you, but it does sever your main allegiance to them. A married couple's primary responsibility is to each other. Though both husband and wife, although most both, excuse me, <coughs> although both husband and wife must look to each other as their main human loyalty in life, the emphasis in this verse is on the man leaving his parents, as the man must become the head, the leader of this new family unit. A married man and woman are still to show love and respect to their parents, but they are no longer to have their parents' desires and wishes be the main priority in their life. A husband and wife's new main priority is their spouse, and their main obligations are towards each other. And their connection to each other is as tight as can be. As, as verse 24 says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast. To his wife. The words hold fast to his wife have to do with being joined together, sticking to each other like glue. Marriage is not supposed to be like a zipper that you can just disconnect at any time. 
Marriage is supposed to be like the strongest superglue. It's supposed to be a bond that does not break. Marriage, from the very beginning, was designed to be permanent. And the closeness and the intimacy of that bond is emphasized at the end of verse 24 where it says, And they shall become one flesh. Now, becoming one flesh is indicating a sexual union, a physical joining together. And we see the Apostle Paul quoting this verse in 1 Corinthians 6, specifically describing this one flesh connection as that sexual union. But although this is certainly referring to a sexual union, it is not only that. The Apostle Paul makes that clear in Ephesians 5. Paul says that, that husbands and wives are to sacrificially, excuse me, that husbands are to sacrificially love their wives as their own bodies, taking care of their spiritual and physical needs. And then Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 as support as what, for what he just said. Which means that this, this one flesh union is, is not only sexual, but he's saying that a married couple are to become one in all areas of their relationship. They are to be unified spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, physically. They are to be fused into one. The idea is that without each other, they are incomplete. But with each other, they are whole. They have their own strengths and weaknesses, but together they complement each other. And the first married couple who ever existed enjoyed the beginning of their marriage without any sin. Verse 25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In the very next chapter of Genesis, sin entered the world, and we see nakedness coming to represent shame and those exposed by their sin. But in Genesis 2, there was no evil or sin infecting mankind yet, and nakedness was completely innocent and good, and their nakedness represented their complete openness and purity. <coughs> They had no reason to be ashamed as everything they were, everything they did was honoring to God. When God created man, he saw that mankind was incomplete and lonely. And so God created the woman to be man's companion, a helper that perfectly matched the man. Woman was made from man, showing her unity and equality with man, and yet she was made differently so that a husband and wife could perfectly complement each other. And that marriage and every marriage after is supposed to be a union of one man and one woman who start a new family unit, stick together like glue, and become one in every area of their life. That is God's blueprint 
for marriage. And since our God is perfectly wise and good, we can have confidence that his blueprint, his divine design for marriage is what is best for every single marriage on the planet. And the more we follow that blueprint, the more our marriages will be filled with joy. Now, although we have already applied some of this passage, I want us to finish by, by looking briefly at what these truths mean for several really big topics that have always been important, but are especially important in our society today. The issues of marriage and sexuality are dealt with many places throughout the Bible, and Genesis 2 does not say everything that needs to be said, but it is one of the key starting places, and the New Testament constantly looks back to this passage. So we are going to briefly see what these truths in Genesis 2 mean for seven different topics. Number one, what this means for women's value. What this means for women's value. Genesis chapter 1 says clearly that both male and female were, were made in the image of God. Thus, men and women are equal in dignity, value, and worth. But Genesis 2 further emphasizes that point by, by showing us that man was incomplete without the woman, that the man was to be a perfect complement to the man, that the woman was made from the same body as man, and that a husband and wife were to be completely unified. God did not create women to be the, the toys or the slaves of men. He did not create them to be mistreated. Women are not inferior to men. Mankind was only complete, was only good in God's sight after he had created both man and woman. Women are inherently and uniquely valuable to God. Number two, what this means for men's leadership. What this means for men's leadership. Though men and women are equal in dignity, value, and worth, this passage shows us that men and women are different in role. God did not create man and woman at the same time. Man was created first, and God's first command went to man. Man being created first shows the headship, the leadership role that men are supposed to have in the family as well as the church. And if man being created first doesn't seem like a very convincing argument for man's leadership role, I would encourage you to look to 1 Timothy 2. As the New Testament scriptures uses man being created first to prove man's leadership role in the church. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 13 and, excuse me, 12 and 13, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. But not only does 
Adam being created first, show man's leadership role, but also the first man was the one who named the woman, woman. And as we talked about earlier, naming people or things shows your authority over that person or thing. Also, the emphasis on starting a new family unit was placed on the man, showing his leadership role. Genesis 2 is clear that in God's eyes, men and women are equal in value, but different in role. Number three, what this means for marriage, what this means for marriage. Marriage is a gift from God. It was not something that man made on their own. It wasn't something we came up with from our own imaginations. No, marriage was especially designed by the almighty, perfect creator of the universe, and he created it for our good. He made marriage so that we would have an intimate companion, someone who would Someone who would stick with us through thick and thin and who would become one with us. And for that, we should praise and we should thank our God. But not only that, but God has revealed his divine blueprint for marriage. He has shown it to us in his word which means we have the instructions that we need, the instructions on woman's value and man's leadership, the guidance on making your spouse the main priority, the command to stick to one another like glue, the need to focus on becoming one in your relationship and the importance of your spouse being your companion and friend. All of that truth is outlined in this passage. And the more we follow God's blueprint for our marriages, the greater our joy will be. Number four, what this means for polygamy, what this means for polygamy. Polygamy is a practice of having more than two people involved in the marriage relationship. A man having four wives or a woman having two or three husbands. This is something that is, is actually very common in many countries across the globe and most likely is going to be eventually legalized in this country. Genesis 2 helps us see the problem and the sin of polygamy. As Genesis reveals God's divine design for marriage and in God's perfect design, marriage was only one husband and only one wife. Having multiple spouses at the same time goes against God's blueprint for marriage. Another thing that goes against that blueprint is found in our next item, number five, what this means for homosexuality. What this means for homosexuality. Marriage between people of the same gender, a man with a man or a woman with a woman, goes directly against the divine design outlined here in Genesis 2. God did not solve man's loneliness problem by giving him another man. Instead, God gave the man someone who was created to be similar and yet different. The blueprint God gave for all marriages was one man 
and one woman. Anything outside that blueprint is destructive and is not marriage according to God. Number six, what this means for transgenderism, what this means for transgenderism. God created a man to be a man and a woman to be a woman. God is the one who puts humans together and he did it for our good. If you are a man, that is a good thing. God created you to be a man and he wants you to be a man. And if you are a woman, that is a good thing. God created you to be a woman and he wants you to be a woman. The one who God created to be a biological man was to marry the one that God created to be a biological woman. Their physical differences were made by God and are good differences that help bring completion to a spouse. Men who pretend to be women and women who pretend to be men go against God's design in creation. And lastly, number seven, what this means for the gospel, what this means for the gospel. If you look around at the world that we're living in today, or if you even just look at your own marriage, you will see that sin and evil has infected so many things. Divorce, adultery, homosexuality, transgenderism, abuse of women, feminism, and the normal conflict and pain that all marriages endure can lead us to despair when we see how far we fall short of God's design and how much judgment all of us deserve because of our own sin. But the good news that the Bible presents is that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sinful mess. Jesus lived a perfect life, then died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, taking the punishment for every single sin believers commit. And Jesus rose from the dead, conquering death and securing eternal salvation for all who trust in him alone as their Savior and as their Lord. And in addition, his death frees all believers from their slavery to sin and his resurrection gives new life, which means that all believers have the power to honor God in their marriages. So if you have turned to Jesus as your forgiver, as your Lord, you can be changed by what we just learned today. God can transform you. So if your marriage is rocky, there's hope. And if your marriage is sweet, thank God and look to God to make it even sweeter. 
God's designs are always good. So look to God's blueprints for marriage. Lord God, we, we thank you so much that you have not left us in the dark, that you have not left us in a, in a place of confusion about what marriage should be, but that you have revealed it to us in your word. I ask God that we would be thankful for that, that we would rejoice that we have seen the blueprint, we've seen the designs, and the designs are really good. But God, I think every single one of us recognizes that, that we have failed to perfectly live up to those designs, that all of us have, have sinned in the way that we have treated our spouses. And I ask God that we would be given both, both, both conviction as well as encouragement as we recognize that, that your son has the power to transform us and make us different, that your spirit is at work in us to bring us back to your perfect design. I ask God that for the people in this church who are married, that you would strengthen their marriages, that you would make them good companions, good friends to one another, that you would, that you would push them to stick together, to not break apart, and to become one in every area of their life. And I ask God that you would prepare all the young people here who have not yet had the, the, the privilege of being married, that you would prepare them to one day find a spouse, to one day come together, that they would rejoice, that they, they, they know the plan, and that you would bring them together with a spouse. And God, as we look at our messed up world that has so walked away from your design of marriage, I ask that you would help us to proclaim your design, to stand for the truth of what your word says, not to stand for it in a hateful way, not to stand for it with, with harshness, but to stand for it with love, graciously and kindly proclaiming that this is your design and that anytime we go outside that design, we end up in hurt and destruction. But when we follow your design, things are good. We thank you so much, Lord God, for what we have seen here today. In your son's name we pray. Amen.